2: welcome to another episode of At The Margin. Today I'm joined by Linus Mattock of the Technical University of Berlin. Linus is also a research affiliate with the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research and the Institute for New Economic Thinking at the University of Oxford. So this episode is a compliment to the previous carbon pricing episode with Meryn Lynch of the SRI. Please do check out that episode if you get a chance where we go through the basic argument in favour of carbon taxes In this episode, we're taking this discussion a step further. How best can we translate the theory behind carbon pricing into practice, taking into account some of the obstacles that we face in the real world? Linus then takes us through his research in this field, where he talks about how we can make carbon pricing work for citizens. We discuss ways in which we can maximise the political acceptability of a carbon tax, this includes framing and the way we could use carbon tax revenues to make carbon pricing palatable to citizens. we we'll go through some advice for policymakers conditional on the political landscape that they face. Neelis is working at the cutting edge of this field, so I'm very grateful to him for taking the time to speak to us. And I'll leave you to our conversation. Okay, Linus. Well, maybe we'll we'll kick off. So, Linus, great to have you here to speak about uh, carbon taxes and your research looks at how we can maybe best make carbon prices work for citizens, how we can maybe get citizens on board with bringing carbon taxes into play. Maybe we could kick off and have as a refresher for listeners who haven't heard our previous conversation about carbon taxes and to recap on why we might why we might be interested in carbon taxes, why we want to put a carbon tax in place in the first place.
0: Yes, hello Niall. Thanks very much for having me. I'm pleased to talk to you about this subject today. Let's do the refresher on the carbon tax uh, first, because assuming uh, we want to meet our climate targets, uh, carbon taxes can, from the economist's perspective, be quite a good way to do that. So the basic idea is that you want to apply a surcharge to carbon intensive products, carbon intensive activities, um, and it follows the economic principle that uh, once you um, raise the price of something, less of it will be produced, less consumed. Now, the basic reason why economists think the carbon price, let's say in the form of a carbon tax, is necessary for mitigating climate change is to say we have to do something to make the fossil fuels expensive. It's all well and good to you know, subsidize renewables or have people change behavior in transport. But as long as we don't do something to make the fossil fuels unattractive, um, it'll be difficult uh, to actually get rid of them. And so raising their price is a clever way of making them unattractive.
2: Okay, that's so that's actually a point that we didn't touch on previously, but I think it's worth making in that if you just subsidize the good thing, that moves demand away from the fossil fuels and the price of the fossil fuels will come down. So we need to make the fossil fuels expensive so that we don't have this knock-on effect. That's a, a really important. Um, and,
0: sorry, go on. And we, we could do that, of course, by by mandates, like we, direct, we directly mandate a coal phase out, but um, the climate problem is so touching on so many sectors of the economy that it's really important to send a broad signal it would be quite difficult, quite inefficient to do a detailed regulation of a mandate there, phase out here, so that the carbon price. This is why economists like it so much as the solution to send this broad signal across the economy.
2: Sure, um, and then you have a long-term signal, so people know we need to plan many years in advance, mm-hmm. and this, and, and we're serious mm-hmm. about, about climate change. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I and mean, the, the the last advantage of the carbon price is maybe. Um, that you know in these times have a more important so it'll get us government revenue now at least in you know countries where maybe most of our listeners are um, there'll be high funding needs after the pandemic uh, you know countries will have run into debt so I expect there'll be new discussions new interest around environmental taxation from that perspective that will levy an additional revenue by that rather than if we Mandate a coal phase out. If we get rid of fossil fuels by direct regulation, we wouldn't have additional government revenue. And then I guess we get a little bit more to the uh, central topic of this, when you say you can also use this government revenue in clever ways to um, mitigate perhaps some of the concerns of carbon taxes around inequality.
2: Sure. So that leads us nicely to what we are here to talk about. Um, so a lot of that rationale is well established in economics literature as to why a carbon tax is good on paper. Your work then takes that rationale and tries to see, well, how can we make sure that this happens in practice? And what do we need to deal with in terms of maybe perhaps political impediments and maybe pushback in society when it comes to making this happen in reality? Um, So in terms of a, a broad introduction, maybe you can tell us why this was of an interest or what maybe sparked your interest in this and uh, what your general findings or ideas are in, in mm-hmm. making, getting a carbon price in, in the practice mm-hmm. in, in reality.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thanks for um, for bringing this up because, you know, exactly sort of speaking personally, when I was a graduate student, um, I listened to all these great economists and what they said seemed to make sense to me to say, well, yes, absolutely, we should price carbon because uh, it's, a, it's a bad, so, you know, we should put a high price on it. But then you ask yourself, well, if the economic rational is so clear, why do we see so little of that um, around the world? So only depending how you look at it, 20 to 25 percent of global uh, carbon emissions are covered by a carbon price, and for global cl- climate targets, the carbon price tends to be too low. Now, the old answer from political economy is, well, it's it's a classical political problem of uh, the incumbents, the lobbyists, the fossil fuel lobby, and so we're not seeing enough of this, and perhaps also because there's a lack of cooperation, both among a country between countries, so we're not seeing enough carbon pricing, enough climate change for that reason. And so what I'll try to outline here in my research is uh, a slightly different angle on this, That because a lot of good work has been done already, on that already, um, is to focus on uh, the perspective of citizens. And so let me start by saying that I don't know about you, but um, if you talk to someone who's not an economist, chances are they'll find this idea of uh, let's raise the price so there'll be less of that, very in, unintuitive. So almost, I find almost no one who isn't, isn't an economist is quite um, surprised by this idea you want to do something about climate change merely by rising the price on pollution. So many citizens are not going to be convinced of that. And ultimately, the politicians who will need to enact the environmental tax reforms raise the price on carbon will be very sensitive to listen to is this an idea that makes sense to citizens.
2: So that's really interesting because as economists, we would, this is sort of something that comes very intuitively to us, but to non-economists, it, it uh, it's perhaps um, less apparent. And maybe that's where some of the tension might come between an economist talking about a carbon tax versus maybe a non-economist, because the lens we're viewing the world in is very different. Um, so Your research then would say, well, do we have to try and make that more apparent to to everybody to to maybe so that we can all communicate at at the same level um, in terms of understanding the benefits of the carbon tax?
0: Yes. So maybe, maybe let me first sort of run you through a few examples of what the research already knows about how do citizens especially perceive carbon taxes. And of course, let me caveat that by saying, if there's economists listen to us, that doesn't mean if the citizens don't get it, it isn't good economics. I would still on the economic principles advocate for it, but maybe there's a few ways in which we can, uh, tweak the policy proposals so that may make, they make more sense to, to the citizens who aren't, aren't economists. So, but I'll, I'll first present that and then maybe we can talk a little bit about the solutions. So, I mean, at, at a very, at a very basic level, um, first, uh, It's just the fact that some people's political inclinations means they're more in favor of carbon taxes and some that are less in favor of carbon taxes. That's actually a very basic point that, you know, some political constituencies, depending on their worldviews, on their political circumstances, on their cultural beliefs, find this idea, okay, yes, the government should tax, especially the fossil fuel industry, quite attractive. Some some don't. And the second point, perhaps the most important one, um, is the one I just made a few minutes ago to say this idea associated with the economist Pigou to say, let's raise the price on carbon so there'll be less of that, is quite unintuitive. And if people sort of intuitively get that something um, is done that that helps the environment, that's much more in the in the direction of let's subsidize renewables, let's do an insulation program, let's fund public transport, these are policies that are much more intuitive to people when they understand it's going to help the climate. Um, then there's a, a more specific effect that research has found. Uh, actually, not don't call this a tax. If you call it a tax, it receives lower support. You could call it uh, a levy, perhaps, or you could call it a climate contribution. That already sounds a lot better. I know although this is sort of, to academics, this is slightly strange, just change the name, but we have the surveys on that. Um, And finally, there's there's this point that you might also want to think about giving uh, people tangent benefits from the revenue, which needn't actually be on climate. Um, So if you can increase the saliency of some of the policies that it has direct tangible benefits rather than say, okay, maybe it'll contribute to climate change mitigation and we'll see that in, in 30 years, that might not be all that helpful.
2: Okay, so there's a lot of lot of things there. Maybe we can dig a bit deeper into some of these. Um, so the first thing you mentioned there was um, some people don't like the term tax. So basically, this comes down to maybe the, fa- the fact that it, it, it borrows from your political perspective that taxes. Some people believe taxes are bad. Essentially, so if you call it a tax, therefore carbon tax equals bad. So just changing the name. Um, and this borrows maybe from maybe behavioural economics that this labelling effect that we we now feel like um, it's a, it's 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 not necessarily a bad thing, and that's just taking on examples. I know in, in an Irish context there was a bill put forward by the Green Party, or there was um, as part of their election manifesto in the last election. They, I think, they went with this sort of tax or fee and dividend approach to avoid the tax labelling, and I think that was the same in the states as well. So people are adopting these principles, I suppose, when it comes to when it comes to carbon taxes. Um,
0: yes, maybe you know we should mention a bit more this idea of fee and dividend. It's Quite interesting how it's played out and not played out across countries. So indeed, fee and dividend avoids the name of carbon tax, but it is basically a carbon tax where the idea is you could redistribute the revenue um, uh, so that every citizen gets the same amount which as far as the economic research goes shows this is a highly progressive policy so the poor people would benefit overall for it um, so the low-income people would benefit overall from it the high-income people would uh, be disproportionately burdened so you know it'll it'll help the climate it'll also do something for um, or against economic inequality You know, it's interesting to see that uh, this seems to particularly resonate in countries where, uh, well, there tends to be sort of a slightly more progressive approach to markets are sort of seen as as, as more important.
2: So, okay, so yeah, so I suppose this touches on a few points, but it's related to maybe your salience aspect in that we have this recycling or, or the redistribution and we're If we have this dividend that that individuals get a transfer, then they can see it and then that can help benefit them. One related question, and this is, I suppose, has been highlighted in an Irish context, in that you have many options when it comes to redistributing that income. So tax raises money. uh, We get some money in the coffers. We can redistribute that maybe giving the same amount to everybody, a lump sum transfer, or we can maybe change... Taxes and benefits that maybe um, benefit those who are less well off. Now, the second option is perhaps more progressive, but it's not as clear and as salient. Um, and this is something that, that your research has touched on. That perhaps if we have the lump sum transfer, well, it's not as positive, but it can maybe perhaps help the cause of getting the carbon tax there, 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 there off off the ground, essentially.
0: Yeah, no, that that that's right because eventually. You know, this is still primarily an exercise in um, protecting the climate, not an exercise in social redistribution. But I mean, it's 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 true that the policymaker who has a range of options what to do with the the revenue. Well, you know, classically, some economists might argue for a tax cuts in terms of um, uh, labour income tax or VAT, or so as most economically efficient. There's also this option of direct redistribution, or you know, there could be debt reduction, or perhaps some Uh, green infrastructure spending now it's interesting you highlight the uh, the context of the um the, the, the saliency of the of the lump sum transfer the fee and dividend in the in the irish context i've got some some more recent research here um on germany which shows that actually many germans like this idea everyone should get the same also on fairness grounds because it's perhaps depending where you're coming from there it might not be that so intuitive, but you could also argue, of course, that um, it's not primarily in, in um, uh, a good rationale here for for helping the the poorest in society. But it's actually quite fair that everybody should get the same. So what my research there highlighted in particular is the Germans tend to like this idea a lot less than the French. In France, this idea of a fee and dividend really gets low support from citizens. Okay. Uh, for a couple of reasons that might be quite specific to France. Well, actually, the kind of more economically conservative Germans, some who live in eastern Germany, they find this idea of fee and dividend really quite appealing.
2: That's really interesting. And do you know why it's different in France versus Germany?
0: Um, the, uh, uh, so So, it is, so first, the, the data from the surveys in France show here that the French particularly seem to, compared to other countries, uh almost like uh, have, have the wrong belief about what this policy would be doing. They think it'll, um, it'll uh, burden them disproportionately more than it actually would. They think it's still not a progressive policy. They find it particularly unfair. Um, that's a, that's a, an academic study. My guess is though, um, also France had quite a lot of political debates about this. Actually, not just the last one was the Yellow Vest, but various mm-hmm. of them. There's another recent study on Washington State that seems to indicate that the more the topic gets politicized, the more it gets discussed, um, the less our people actually, the less people are in favor in, of, of the polls. The, the, the paper on uh, Washington State in the United States, they show that they had two referenda. One was fee and dividend, another one was a different way of designing a carbon tax. And after the two political debates about these referenda to make a carbon tax happen, uh, people in Washington state in the u s were even less convinced than before that they should they should be a carbon tax, so it seems like we also have an effect that the citizens get bored of it if you like
2: okay right very interesting that's um uh, somewhat counterintuitive or definitely something i wasn't aware of so uh, learning a lot here as well um you have a lot of familiarity with what's going on in different countries in this context and I know we've talked there about France and Germany but is there anything else that maybe perhaps you can shed some light on and help us to understand?
0: Yes um, I think we should also talk a little bit about the the background here of governance. You could almost talk about say in a naive way about good governance some people associated this with with trust in politicians or perhaps um, something like also low perceived corruption. And I think it's it's quite interesting, broadly speaking, in this context that um, we seem to find um, evidence that in the countries where you have a lot of that, you have high trust, you have a lot of um, potential for political decision-making, arbitration, um, it seems... Uh, government can get closer to what the economists would actually advocate as, you know, their desirable proposal to make an environmental tax reform happen. So two good examples here are Sweden and California, I would say, although they're very different. Um, The Swedish case is almost one where, you know, the textbook uh, economist would applaud and say, well, look, they have a very high carbon tax now in many sectors of the economy, and at least in the past, they've been using they used to reform their tax system so that the distortionary taxes, the income taxes are lower. Um, California, quite different. They've done a uh, most of their carbon pricing by an emission trading system. I assume you've covered that before, but maybe just to recall is this idea that their, their permits and firms can trade it. And so there's also a carbon price. And they've really... Uh, with without the revenue, there they had a really lot of scope for political decision making to target with the revenue quite precisely. Lots of things that might might make life in California more pleasant, both sort of do something towards the vulnerable communities, but also do something um, to to um, to do a lot of green infrastructure spending. Nice. And then you have countries where, of course, you have kind of the opposite. You're in a climate of, in a political climate of no trust. Um, of governance problems. And then um, you see it's far harder to get something like a carbon tax off the ground.
2: Okay. Um, I'm not going to say which one we are in Ireland. But um, uh, if we're talking about um, political, so, so essentially, if you have good political trust, it can be a lot easier to get it off the ground. And if you have a situation where perhaps there's lacking in trust, then perhaps maybe we need to put more effort into helping citizens get on board, essentially. Would that be fair to say? Um, So what would you what would be the hallmarks, perhaps, if you were looking at a country and trying to to advise somebody on how to maybe bring a carbon tax on board and what would be the determinants of certain actions to try and try and get that trust
0: mm-hmm. yeah um well a great question um and first maybe let me let me caveat that almost any country we find where there was a substantial carbon tax reform that never came without political complications and political battles and often takes several attempts or a couple of years to to get it through but so what are what are the determinants? what would i say um, I would mostly say what we just talked about last is um, perhaps the, the, the primary um, determinant politicians will need to look into which is how we in a climate of in a, in a political climate of of distrust or of uh, fundamental tax aversion people are already very skeptical of such a corporate tax. If you're not, then you can be like Sweden and California you have a lot more potential for, um, getting close to the textbook economics recommendations if you are if you are in such a setting then you have to do everything basically to build enough consensus convince citizens this is really a good idea and typically you have to do this in some form of tangible benefits mm-hmm. if for example uh, there is a particularly a particular political interest against this then almost surely you have to do something as the politician to compensate the losers here And it seems, um, as far as we understand, the two principal ways beyond uh, a targeted compensation for whoever has a lot to lose, is on the one hand this idea you should spend more um, of the uh, revenue you get on green spending, on doing some infrastructure programs, or you can try this idea to to give people a cash transfer of some form, give them the money back in a salient way.
2: Um, And what they just... Just as an aside, there, year after, uh inspiring a thought. Okay, so we we're giving the money back in a salient way. We're we're showing people that perhaps this is something that um that can be beneficial. But I suppose we have to be careful that we don't make people skeptical or people you know wary that we're trying to pull the wool over their eyes and say this is you know this this is all great, whereas. Uh, because people start to think they're being fooled. So, is there a balance we have to strike there to make sure that um, people are well informed, but uh, that they know we're being genuine about, about, about what we're doing?
0: Oh yes, um, obviously. So, look, I'm not a political scientist, but it's, it's obviously very important. Shouldn't should stress that that you know there must be public debate about that. Mm. There should be transparent communication. Um, of what the politicians are doing here it doesn't mean like you you, you know as, as a government you can't fool citizens in saying this is not really happening i think yeah. that's quite important and maybe if i can sort of try an example here um you know let's focus on the united kingdom for a second where the climate targets are actually quite progressive but i do believe the united kingdom has quite some difficulties with um, the transport in the housing sector Unlike some other European countries, they don't yet have a carbon tax on these sectors and there's a question by which instruments do they do they do they want to follow in those sectors to meet their climate targets Now suppose you wanted to sell um a carbon price plus an infrastructure program on the building sector specifically where the u k is building stocks not all that great, so there's a high potential for uh improvement then perhaps you know a way to to sell this to the public is not to emphasize the carbon price too much, but you could still say, look, it's a program for providing safe and clean and affordable energy at a lower cost. So we're funding um, a building renovation program. And the way we fund this is by a surcharge on heating fuels. And although slightly unintuitive to economists, I think sort of phrased this way, it might make much more sense. You're still transparent. You're saying, yes, there will be the surcharge on the heating fuels, but you're emphasizing everyone in the UK will in principle like safer and more affordable and cleaner, cleaner heating.
2: Yeah, it's a it's labelling effect and it's salient and it's, um, it helps get people on board. One other uh, example that came to mind as well is the response to COVID. And I find that from my own personal experience, when the actions have been explained clearly, especially, and this happened more so at the start of the pandemic, um, I was more inclined to to be on board. But then when there was a bit of uncertainty around whether what way it was going to go, well, then people started questioning things and you could hear a bit more, um, a bit more hesitancy. So perhaps that's another way people can perhaps relate to to this sort of situation. Um, so we covered that salient point. Was there other ways that maybe a policymaker can, perhaps try and get that trust to get people on board when it comes to uh, designing a uh, carbon tax policy?
0: So, I mean, in, in general, it seems that, you know, higher trust in politicians, when once you're, when you're the politician, is a precondition for lots of desirable things politically. I mean, there's also much written in the broader social science how it's a precondition for delivering more egalitarian outcomes um, in general. Um, on the climate question, uh, I do think... It's also almost important to think about where you might want to stop with this. So, if I may take this slide here, where to say, well, um, although you know I believe the carbon pricing, I'll be an economist where you know I would say where it's possible you should you should do it. I'm also happy to believe that in some political contexts it might not be now the first thing to do. Maybe first you need to build more constituencies for. The new technologies that's going to replace all the, the fossil fuel-driven technologies. And something that's more on the question of inequality, though, um, occupies me in my research is that uh, you don't see this very often to say actually the the, the revenue is um, spent in this highly progressive way as by the London transfer. Yes, you have it in Switzerland, you have it in Canada, but of course much of the world isn't like that. So if you take a much more well, I'm not going to say pessimistic, but maybe a realistic political economy perspective, maybe in many countries, this is just not a highly realistic proposal to say the government will raise some revenue and then the revenue will actually be spent mostly on the most vulnerable people or the low-income households. If you're in that context, I think it is worth thinking twice about um, whether the price should come now or whether you you can make progress on emission reductions also with more direct regulation where the direct regulation could be we'll have to do a mandate first maybe we'll have to do more low carbon fuel standard first or more more intensity standards and so i'm also doing research to look into the distributional consequences of that
2: okay and so basically as the economist would um view those regulations to perhaps second best in the sense that you're mandating how people change and therefore you're not it's not the most efficient but perhaps we can still get emissions reduction that we want, um, but with a greater welfare loss. And you have looked at the distributional impacts of that. So uh, have you any thoughts then on how how that would play out?
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Say, uh, look, this this is a more recent um, research uh, interest in environmental economics to look into that. Yes. Um, Say, if we focus for for, um, a moment on the example of an efficiency standard, um, which is quite applied quite broadly in many countries for especially in on cars, for example um, then almost everyone tends to agree it's inefficient of course because it's not as um, it's, it's not a, it's a less clear signal um, in the carbon price but also the consensus now from research in the past couple of years seems to be yes it's also less progressive than uh A carbon tax that's very egalitarian. And perhaps that's not surprising because if you use all this government revenue from the carbon tax and you you channel it to the most vulnerable largely or in a highly progressive way, then the efficiency standard doesn't give you the revenue to do that. But actually, if you say this is not a, a highly politically realistic possibility, then we show that the distributional consequence of such an efficiency standard, for example, on cars or in buildings, can be. At least slightly progressive so still the poor would uh, have less of a burden from that than the rich and actually it has a better distributional implication than the carbon tax where the revenue is not channeled back to households because it's used for debt reduction so it's actually kind of in the middle between the super progressive carbon tax and the the carbon tax where nothing happens with the revenue
2: okay just sort of let me just see if i got that so it's not as progressive as the carbon tax, the ideal carbon tax where we redistribute all the revenue. But in some contexts, that's that's not necessarily going to happen in real life. So if we can take that into account, well, then perhaps, and if that's the, well, the situation we're in, well then perhaps the standard is better than what the alternative is, where we have a carbon tax with no redistribution. Um, mm-hmm. But I suppose the key point here is that. We uh, we we would still prefer the carbon tax with redistribution if we, and that should be, mm-hmm. should, should, be should be the target. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I mean, so it matters in, um, in which country context you're looking into. So you know, if you're in the country context where you have a lot of political. Um, more political capital in place to do the carbon tax nicely, mm. then there's no point about the efficiency standard. But I mean, even even the American economists, although they put different emphasis on that, would acknowledge that in the yeah. US context, um, the efficiency standard would have better distributional consequences than if the carbon tax revenue goes somewhere, and not back to the vulnerable people. Yeah. And so we've also had an we've 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 programmed an application there to say, but it also works for China. It's essentially the same picture. Okay. And so I hope I'll, I'll do a little bit more research of that in the future for other world regions
2: too. Sure, um, that's a nice example because it it takes into account. Okay, well, this is the theory, and this is what we would like in, in, in to this is what we would like to implement in practice. And then you take into account, well, these are the, the constraints that we're faced with in reality. And then, given what we know about reality, well, this is what we can realistically expect and and then so it, it's a nice way of thinking about how we transfer what's on the page to what's in practice um, which, which 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 is really nice mm-hmm. I think um,
0: no I agree it's a you know it's it's actually a non-trivial exercise here in social science to say yes there's the economic textbook and yes it does make sense in a lot of good situations but you know, how many of the political constraints do you put first rather than you put yeah. them afterwards the ideal solution and that's um, to me, at least, that's sort of stimulating and interesting, um, yeah. and perhaps sort of in, in this context not quite appreciated.
2: Absolutely, and definitely something that any listeners, any policy listeners, or anybody who's, yeah, in in that sphere would uh, would find very interesting. Um, so, I suppose some other work that you're doing recently is looking at uh, looking at meat taxes, and I, this is another area where. Um, I suppose some people have strong opinions for or against but uh, perhaps you can tell us a bit about how a carbon tax maybe might relate to a meat tax and are there similarities or dissimilarities or um, I suppose the motivation for a meat tax is because similar to a carbon tax it has negative effects on the environment and we need to maybe reduce our consumption of meat going forward uh, but maybe there might be more nuance to that that that, that you could help us understand
0: Yes, that's right. And um, look, I would say I work on environmental taxation more broadly, where the climate issue is actually quite special and therefore also a bit simpler to say, uh, well, a ton of carbon emitted wherever, at whichever point of time is basically making the same contribution to the climate problem. But in practice, things like meat, and also another case I'm very interested in is, is urban transport. So you could think of a congestion charge or a fuel tax or a road tax in some form, um, you, you target many more um, environmental problems at once than um, with the carbon tax that's essentially good for the climate. And so what interests me, especially though with the, the meat tax, but also with the congestion charge, is there is, yes, there are multiple um, environmental um, benefits here of, of reducing that. But there's also a direct health benefit to citizens to lead healthier lifestyles. So, you know, on average, in our countries, if less meat is eaten, then our population gets healthier, because sort of um, a high meat intake causes a number of diseases in the long term. Similarly, um, sedentary lifestyle, independent of obesity, causes a number of diseases, and there's good evidence that. Um, you know, with higher fuel prices or congestion charges, people move around more. So these cases are of interest to me because you have this, um, well, almost in a new way, a double dividend of reducing the environmental impact, but also doing something for people's health. Um, and it's true that the, uh, there's multiple environmental impacts. If you think about meat, then perhaps even, even the bigger one compared to climate is biodiversity loss, although that's hard to mm. quantify as in meat production via land use is actually a driver, perhaps sort of the agriculture is the most important driver of biodiversity loss and the meat production requires a lot of land use. Well, in the transport case, you also have local air pollution, you have noise pollution, um, so you target multiple ones. And that makes, in some sense, the analysis of these instruments much more complicated than the carbon tax. And so your your work on urban
2: transport, um, I'm not familiar with it at all. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that, because I I actually personally interested in hearing that
0: (laughs) if if you permit i'll just make one more point on the biodiversity law sure yeah Um, absolutely. question um where you know it's been even recently it's been suggested i haven't seen a study but i wouldn't be surprised in the media that because um uh china had these difficulties with uh with a pig disease so they had to um get rid of a lot of a lot of their pigs basically they now have an additional um uh they, they, they had a rise in beef consumption, and the beef consumption was suggested is particularly bad for um, deforestation in the Amazon. There's sort of almost mm-hmm. like it was suggested a direct link there. So um, I'm stressing that, independent whether that's true, because I find with economists what the environmental scientists call here the indirect land use effect, which I've just explained, um, is something that economists don't tend to study much in these in in, the, in, the, in, the, in these contexts of global environmental problems. And could be very important for biodiversity loss, but from the economist's perspective, we don't now know. No. Yeah. So on urban transport, Dan, if you wanted to, um, yeah, please, uh, if you have time, go ahead with that. <laughs> um, it's very interesting to me to say the the health benefits of um, people moving around a little bit more in cities are enormous. So we confirm what people in public health have already shown um, that per per mile or per, per kilometer per the unit of travel, actually, they are about two orders of magnitude above the environmental externalities. Now, you can question, you know, whether it's the, the right metric to measure that. But if you believe that for a moment, it just shows how high... Um, society values our direct health, and how many of the diseases get touched upon by people not doing enough physical exercise. Basically, yeah. that's that's UK data for that. And so, I'm very interested in argument that's, that suggests here, and that's to to environmental economics a little bit new, to say we we sort of somehow have to take that into account um, in the policies we suggest to do something about urban transport. It, it it gets you into these debates that's right about you know. Um, is a government or perhaps a, an urban municipality here meddling with people's mm. preferences? Because maybe, you know, the preferences for um, you go everywhere by car are quite high. Yeah. no just let me add to that. So for once, um, of course, I understand and believe that uh, to increase um, the... Um, the, the, the trips to people do um, either by bicycle or on foot or just even if they walk to the public transport stop. Mm. To increase that, we want more targeted policies than fuel tax or a congestion charge, um, like an infrastructure overhaul, or overhaul most importantly, yeah. or more pedestrianisation, etc., or even better public transport. So they actually just more of an incentive to use it and to walk there.
2: You mentioned about preferences, and it's interesting to think about, okay, well, on one hand, Maybe my preference, I do have a high preference for driving my car, but I'm not, maybe I'm not aware of the negative health preference. So and this is sort of, it's almost like a fraternalistic thing that we're, we're, we're maybe guiding people towards something that's better for them in the long run, but they don't, they won't thank you for it in the short run. So it's, um, it, it's an interesting yeah. trade-off.
0: It's true. It's sure. I mean, look, there isn't so much work. What exactly is going on? Why people don't um, don't reap these high health benefits? I mean, we're not talking everyone, of course. You know, yeah, some of, of our course. listeners might do quite a lot of exercise, but we're talking for the UK. I know this better about a segment of the population that basically does no exercise at all, not even walking a dog or something. Um, and I've never seen a a real specification through the various behavioral effects you might think are at play here. I mean, you can say that one is a case of some sort of time inconsistent preferences, as the jargon goes, as you've just described. It could also be one of simply limited attention, that people Mm. are just not quite aware to the extent, although, of course, it's very well known to societies that in general, sports is good for physical health um, and for mental health too, by the way it just seems um, many are not aware of the extent that you don't need to kind of do an enormous amount of of exercise, but actually just sort of, you know, a casual walk of 20 minutes per day is also sort of already very good. Um, And so the, the urban transport people, you know, the urban planners more like they've their paradigm, how do we think about sustainable urban transport? has been like that for a long time, so it's mm. you know we get a bit of an into a bit of methods discussion in economics to say sometimes this idea that uh, um, you know it's 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 good to consider it from the perspective you have your fixed preferences about what you like to do. Um, but then, perhaps we need a broader set of constraints um, you know under which we we're we 're choosing um, because what you 've just said is it's not not entirely about say the um, the cost of the transport, but it might be something about how easily accessible is it to you or yeah. um, is this a, is this an option at all you 're considering there so, so.
2: yeah absolutely it is interesting and, um, and the fact that the health benefit is of a greater order of magnitude means that it's, yeah, it's not something I was aware of. So that's uh, that's that's really interesting too. Um, so maybe just to, to wrap up then, uh, one question that I had was in relation to, um, if we're thinking about carbon taxes and we're thinking about bringing these policies into play, if you think about the current landscape that we're working from, and in Europe we have the EU ETS, and I suppose we have to make sure that when we're talking about carbon taxes, we at a national level, it tends to cover maybe the non-ETS sector. So everything else apart from electricity and and heavy industry that's covered by ETS. Because we have that system in place, perhaps there are lessons we can learn from it. And some people would suggest that the ETS was a disaster and some people would suggest, well, it was imperfect, but it was perhaps the best given the political constraints constraints that were at play. Um, But perhaps maybe you could help us... Tell us what you think about where where you fall on on that situation in terms of evaluating how the emissions trading scheme came into play.
0: Yeah, well, thanks for bringing that up because in the sense the other big debate about carbon pricing right on, on the emissions trading. And first, I absolutely agree as you say, you know, this is already the the established instrument in the European Union. Um, that is almost like the first thing you have to do if you give policy advice is consider the the regulation landscape there already is in place. Now. You know, people tend to have polarized views on this. I do agree that you know mistakes were made in the early phases of the emissions trading system in Europe. Admittedly, one was one of the earliest, or earliest there was at least on um, on carbon emissions around the world. Um, nevertheless, I also believe that now that we see a price level of thirty or even forty uh, euros per allowance per per ton of co2 it has a markable effect on european emissions it it, it has tangible effects on reducing especially coal in where that's still in place in europe and so at the beginning look it seems to me that um, much political effort went into to bring the incumbent industry the fossil fuel industry on board which is why we had for quite some some time, a system where many of the permits were grandfathered—that's economic jargon for they've been given to f- for free—to um, the industry, which still means there's a price signal because they get, uh, the permits get traded. Um, but it does mean, like in a sense, society is missing missing out on the the revenue, the economic rent. Now that's been changed. The number of permits that get auctioned increases in the ETS, um, and so I believe yes, maybe the beginning was not so good because much of the political background was to get the system up running and get the, the, the players on board to accept it. Um, a different take of this is one where you would say, well, is there a problem with speculation on this market? Is there, is there a problem that the price goes up and down and does this really reflect somehow um uh, well, the economic fundamentals and, you know, is this a stable mm-hmm. price path to the investment, the changes we we need in those sectors. I don't want to take a stand here. I think there's, you know, there's good arguments on both sides, but I do want to say that if the question is, um, what can we learn from the implementation of the EU ETS, it hasn't really got a price corridor. So something like, you know, you could have a minimum or a maximum price depending where you were more concerned, um, that would limit the kind of fluctuation and 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 in fact, many of the other emission trading systems around the world for um, carbon emissions have that. So they have a minimum price or a price corridor, but the EU so far hasn't.
2: And I suppose just to stress stress the f- importance of that is that the price is generally going up but it has a lot of volatility around that. And that, volati- well, it, actually, it's not necessarily going up, but if you have the price corridor, you're making sure that it's necessarily going up in the long run. And that means that uh, firms can, firms especially, can plan 20 years ahead. And then if they know the trajectory is going up, well, then they can invest accordingly. Um, yes. And, I, was, and there was a proposal, I think it was a French proposal initially, that for this sort of price corridor, but that never really... Uh, got any traction, I don't think. One thing actually to mention is, now we're really getting into the details of ETS here, but there's the market stability reserve, which is very complicated. But essentially, does that not in effect help to maybe perhaps enforce the price floor and that if there's too many emissions, we can pull them out of the system and
0: shore up the price? I, I could see uh, how you know the market stability reserve could be used that way. I must admit I, um, I don't ha- I don't have the details here to say how the current yeah. system would affect it I do know that some people sort of would call for a reform of this market stability reserve to effectively make it act as a kind of a minimum price if you like
1: so that's yeah, right
0: yeah. Um but, you know, to, to to stress in some way this idea, why shouldn't our ETS have a price corridor would in some sense turn it into a mix between a carbon uh, carbon tax and an emission trading system, which brings, you know, this conversation almost like through a circle because we started from the, the basic rationale of carbon pricing. And so maybe, you know, you see various political contexts around the world where, you um, where, you know, that seems to be the solution between those who prefer an emission trading system and those who prefer a carbon tax in one form or another. My final point is perhaps actually there's very little research on what do you citizens think about emissions trading. Historically, like, the debate of that, how do we implement the political impediments to an ETS, understandably have been on the firms, the incumbents, etc. But... uh, it, to me, it's just very interesting to say if we see even more of that, why don't we? Why don't we know anything really about what do, uh, and what does an average citizen think about um, of this instrument? Do they think it's too market radical? Do they think it's some sort of weird system where you kind of pay something and then you get rid of your carbon sins? So we just don't know. So I think that's an, also an interesting question for for further academic work there.
2: Absolutely, um, definitely. That's really really interesting. Okay. Um... I think we'll leave it there. But thanks a million, Linus. I really enjoyed that. And uh, it's always a, a good conversation when I definitely feel like I've learned something as well. So uh, thanks, thanks a million.
0: Thanks very much again for having me. Enjoyed that.